Welcome to Casually Philosophic, a podcast where we examine the nuances of behavior bit by bit. My name is Carmen. And I'm Ginny. And we'll be spending our Friday evenings sharing our thoughts on all things casually philosophic. Okay, so today we are going to look at personality indicators. And more specifically, the MBTI, uh, the Meyer-Briggs type indicator. So we'll start with a bit of history, I guess, and then we'll go more into the specific, uh, specific types what they all mean and what we kind of infer from them and the conceptions and misconceptions that society has from them that will go through all that jazz together. So yeah, hope you enjoyed the ride. But to start with some a bit of background, um, this kind of the very going back to the very beginning, that would be the 20th century with Carl Jung, which is a pretty famous psychologist, philosopher, philosophist. Yeah, all that. Um, and he believed that people can be divided by personality types. And more specifically, he identified the introversion and extroversion of personality types and thought that these would be two categories that can divide all kind of human beings with their personalities. And he also um, kind of created cognitive functions, which we'll be getting into um, in the later half of the podcast. And then we have the 1920s where Catherine Briggs and her daughter with the last name um, Meyer and thus came the name MBTI, um, which gave us these four letter acronyms. And yeah, we'll get into these um, four personality aspects, repairs, and delve a bit deeper into it. So Carmen, do you want to introduce what these four kind of standpoints, aspects, preferences are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So um, like we said, like, you know, the personality types, um, like the Myers-Briggs personality types, they're divided into um, kind of four main categories. So as Jenny touched upon, there's, you know, like introversion, extroversion, there's um, into intuition and sensing, then there's thinking, feeling, and there is perceiving and judging. So those are the four categories that are kind of you know, we'll delve a bit more deep into, but those are kind of like the four letters that we associate one unit of a personality with. And based on these combinations, there are 16 personality types that, you know, a person can be categorized into. So yeah, we'll be delving a bit more into that, what they mean, and just some of our takes on it. Yeah. And we'll start with the first preference pair and just kind of go into each in with like a bit more detail. So the first one is kind of worldviews and how we interact with our surroundings and how we really see the world. And that, again, mentioned earlier is the extroverts and introverts and people who focus more on the outer world would be called extroverts and people who are more focused on the inner worlds are introverts. So what's a bit funny about this is that um, we would think that introverts are more like the shy people, quiet, calm, keeping to themselves. But I think better definition is just how you gain energy. I feel like that's a little more, a better way of defining these two types, Mm -hmm. um, which is like if you kind of gain your energy through social interactions, then you're probably an extrovert. And if you gain energy by spending time alone, the type where, you know, you go to a party and every, say, an hour, you, you would feel really overwhelmed by the interaction. So a bit of personal experience, I would feel like a rush of energy going back into me when I go to the uh, one of the bathroom stalls 
lock myself in and just take a deep breath in and out. And yeah, I guess, as you can tell, quite introverted myself or identify as more that end of the spectrum. But do keep in mind, even though these are four more distinctly categorized pairs, it's still a spectrum. And yeah, I took, I think a lot of us take this personality test on 16 personalities, and it gives you a percentage of which side you lean more towards. And it's interesting seeing how that percentage kind of shift to one side over the years. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that's something interesting. But um, going back to shyness, um, I don't think MBTI talks about it as much, but shyness isn't quite as an indicator of um, being an introvert as Mm -hmm. much as, um, I know 16 personality actually has this other indicator called, um, I don't remember what it was called exactly, but it tells you whether you are like um, more turbulent or more assertive. So I feel like shyness could drive a little bit from that. I'm going to another personality test, which we won't talk about, but might refer to later on. Mm-hmm. Um, shyness, shyness could cater more towards like being more neuroticist, having a more neuroticist kind of mindset just because how harsh you take in the personalities on yourself but yeah what are some like general conceptions um, between introverts and extroverts that the public may have that may be kind of viewed as a stereotype or a little mm-hmm. wrongly yeah, I think uh, two things I want to mention before that. So mm-hmm. we talk about the MBTI um, personality test. Obviously, it's a very popular testing method, and it's very specific in the sense that it gives you a very good idea of how you learn and what your natural tendencies are. And I think for those reasons, it's a very good test. But I think with almost any personality test, you know, there's the fundamental flaw that people may feel that it's placing you in a box or it's restricting you to very certain categories. And I think in the case we're talking about with introversion and extroversion, I feel like that's also a form of categorizing people into like the box of an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason I bring this up is because, like we mentioned, that Carl Jung, who was the original pioneer of this, kind of established these two categories. And I think fundamentally, like obviously, like it's groundbreaking to know that there's, you know, two types of people that how they operate and how their energy is managed, like how they best refuel themselves. But I think like over the years and quite recently, the idea of an ambivert has also come to attention as well, where these individuals um, don't necessarily fit into the categories or the distinct categories of a sole extrovert or a sole introvert, but rather they can fluctuate between these two types depending on the situation, depending on the mood, depending on several other factors. And so I think that's interesting to bring up too, because I think while the MBTI type does offer a lot of insight by indicating whether a person's like turbulent or assertive in that sense, I still think there's a middle ground, which can't necessarily be captured by like the two categories that, we, that we've kind of been dealing with a bit. Yeah. Do you want to mention something? Yeah. I would like to add to that a little bit. So mm-hmm. yeah, when you were mentioning Emberverse, that was definitely a thought that popped up too, especially with like it's not quite binary. It's not really black and white, these types. Right. Just like, it's just like what you said. And I also heard the terms like extroverted introvert and introverted right. extroverts come up. I thought that was just a really interesting concept just to see how 
aspects of one side can kind of um, leak into the other. And that mm-hmm. can be something that defines you. And yeah, it's actually it, like exactly with not just the categories in MBTI, but just personality indicator, this one specifically itself. It's like accuracy may be one thing, but it's hard to generalize everyone into kind of a type of category, no matter how many categories there are um, in that indicator. So yeah, mm-hmm. just something I wanted to kind of add a little sprinkle in there a little bit. But yeah, mm-hmm. what was the second point or is something else you also yeah. wanted to say? And so yeah, so the first point was about the ambivert thing that, you know, like you can't categorize people. And I feel like there's always a middle ground to that. Like I personally didn't know that ambiverts existed until maybe like a year or two ago. So when I heard about it, I was like, I feel like I resonate more with that because if need be, I can sometimes feel myself with people like when I'm in an environment, like sometimes I'll require like a crowd of people or a lot of people to kind of bring up my energy in certain social situations that'll definitely motivate me to like maybe talk more, be more extroverted or reach out to people more. Like I'll kind of feel off other people's energy in the room. So I think I resonate with that, but I also resonate with having an overload of that and then having to process those emotions and that energy within myself to kind of bring myself back to equilibrium. So I, that's why I found that idea of ambiverts interesting. So that was point number one. Um, Point number two was uh, we were talking about extroverts and the typical idea we associate with extroverts that they're always go, go, go. They love to meet people and talk to people every second. They don't get tired of people and they just love to be surrounded by people 24 seven. While I think that's kind of the gist of it, but I also feel like there's kind of some loopholes in that kind of stereotype because I, like you mentioned before, like there's like extroverted introverts and there can be introverted extroverts. And I've also heard of the idea of extroverted shy people. Now there's a lot of people that are shy who maybe don't feel comfortable like opening up to people that they don't know, but the second they open up, they exhibit those extroverted traits. They're able to take the energy of the room of the people that they're more comfortable with and be able to express that. So I think that assuming that extroverts are always people who are willing to like walk up to strangers and spark a conversation may not necessarily be true. And I think it just goes back to what Jenny was saying, which is it's not a question of how you behave in certain situations, it's more of a matter of where your energy comes from. So a person can feel a source of energy maybe in a group of, in a room full of strangers, or they can feel energy after opening up and realizing that they're around a good group of people. And then they may choose to unleash their extroverted side or their extroverted nature. So I think there's definitely some nuances to to that point. But um, I want to hear what your um, points are for about the question that you asked me, that whether we feel um, how you feel about the introverted, extroverted um, situation. Yeah, and like even with misconception too, um, I think there's something, all right, um, just had a thought when you were having, like when you were speaking, but I'll set that thought aside for a bit. And I think a general misconception, or at least a question that we kind of thought of when we were um, brainstorming for this podcast and just looking at these um, stereotypes is that would introverts have lower social intelligence? Because as like as what you were saying before, it was like maybe th- there is someone who is an introvert extrovert who doesn't seem to be as expressive when first meeting them or even like a very shy introvert 
where they may lack the com- confidence to initiate conversations or really appeal to others as someone who's very open and very energetic in social situations. But over time, you might see that kind of barrier of like, you know, lack of self-confidence or being more um, self-conscious. You might see that melt away over time and see how their true kind of way of gaining energy, how that speaks to their own behavior. And with social intelligence, it's like how, I think if we really want to define it, it's how someone can read social cues, how empathetic, how empathetic they are and how they are able to, like how well they are to use their interpersonal communication skills to really navigate around social situations. And so in that sense, it's really hard to judge a person by whether they're an introvert or an extrovert, because a lot of the times the way they express themselves may be different. An extrovert may more express more outwardly and may be more courageous towards making mistakes, although that may also be a more confidence thing that strays outside of these two categories. Whereas an introvert might keep them, keep things more towards themselves a bit more and have more internal thought processes and thought developments. And you can't say that just because they don't share them, they don't understand or they, they don't exist. And yeah, in that sense, it's easy to think how society may take a bias towards one side more than another, just mm-hmm. because if you don't quite understand what someone's thought processes are, if they don't really show that they understand or show that they know or show that they are capable of understanding and being empathetic and being able to read social cues like if you can't see that it's hard to really know that they have it right but I I tell I totally agree with that you know society's kind of conditioned that you know speak your truth or hold your peace forever type of model where it's like you can either say that you know something and you have to present it in a certain way but if you don't then people will assume that you don't have it you know And I think it's another, like you said, um, a misconception with introverts that introverts lack confidence and extroverts have confidence. And I feel like, um, you know, it's it's a general stereotype because we think that people that are able to talk more have confidence and people that aren't able to talk more perhaps have a lack of confidence. And I think that's definitely a stereotype that's propagated and a very common stereotype. But I think um, something to note is that introverts probably do have confidence. I mean, I'm not to say that like every introvert is confident, like there might be nuances to that as well. However, I do feel that introverts are able to be confident, have a silent or internal confidence within them that they carry around, you know, in their day-to-day activities and may not necessarily express, like you said. However, it's still present and it's no less than um, the, the confidence that um, an extrovert may exude into their day-to-day life. So for maybe an extrovert, their confidence comes from talking to a certain person or talking to maybe like a high-level, you know, corporate officer. But for an in- a person who's an introvert, their confidence may come from the way they, you know, they carry themselves, the way they, you know, dress, the way they, you know, um, how they maybe value their hobbies or they value something more of an internal intrinsic factor into them that kind of like boosts their confidence. So I think confidence has different masks. It has different looks. And I think, like we said before, um, 
society tends to revolve around extroverted confidence and associating confidence with extroverted qualities, which I think is a very slippery slope to go down, you know, if you don't really know what confidence can look like in different people. And I think for people that have that kind of um, introverted confidence, they can get overlooked a lot, which I think personally isn't fair, you know, in a lot of um, work settings and professional settings where people have to assume your competency and your value as an employee or as, you know, a worker or whatever it may be. So, you know, I think there's just different looks to it. I think, I feel like um, it could take different forms, but I think it's important to value both the extroverted and introverted confidence that can, you know, come across. You were also mentioning a little bit about how your roles and also how your expectations kind of leads you into being someone that like, may that be leaning more towards the introverted side or the extroverted side. Example is like, um, how you explained that you may identify more as being an ambivert, ambivert, um, mm-hmm. but how in some situations you can, would tend to gain energy through like individual time and spending time alone versus other times where you would gain more energy in social situations. So it depends more on the roles that you're given and the um, environment and the expectations that you are given. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, how do you think like an expectation of you is able to change what your personality is and has your personality and these like your location on the spectrum changed over the years and how do you think that may have affected that Mm -hmm. maybe also like just bring that back into humanity how might cultures and expectations have changed our thoughts and like the personality of the mass right that's a pretty that's a very loaded question but I think that's a very important (laughs) question too though um let's start off with um how maybe our personality gets influenced by the stage of life we're in or the environment we're in um I definitely feel like um in regards again to the context of personality tests and you know how it fluctuates like that um I'm, I'm saying that because like we evolve as people and it's very natural to change, you know, like I'm not saying that. Um, what I'm talking about is, for example, maybe back in elementary school where you maybe talk to more people back then, you were maybe on the side of an extrovert. And perhaps when you entered high school and maybe you became more studious, for example, then you maybe became more of an introvert. So I think that um, for each individual, there can definitely be fluctuations based on environment because I believe as humans, it's almost, it, it's natural to adapt to your environment. It's kind of our, our kind of inbuilt ability to kind of see where, how we can conform and s- develop best into um, the best suited needs for the situation at hand. So maybe like for someone who was entering high school, maybe they need to they need to be more social so they kind of learned social cues they learned to read social nuances and maybe tended you know if they took the personality test when they were in high school to see whether they became more extroverted or not the test may indicate that they kind of went they tipped more onto the extroverted scale so i think to your question i definitely think there is 
fluidity in that sense where you're not restricted to being just an introvert or just an extrovert for the rest of your life, I think there's definitely um, like a reaction range where you can um, definitely go between. But I still think that that being said, there is definitely a component of you that you can't just completely change and um, just flip, you know, as you please. Because like I said, there's a reaction range and I'm using a psychology term, which I should probably clarify. Like a reaction range kind of refers to like, uh, like a range of possibilities that you're capable of with your given set of qualities. So for example, if you kind of tend more to the introverted side, your reaction range might be somewhere between like the borderline of an introvert and extrovert. Maybe that's the farthest you can go. Or for some people that are extroverted, maybe they have a bigger reaction range. Maybe they can be like introverted and very extroverted. So I think that window of how much we're able to fluctuate definitely depends on the person. And I think that while we are able to adapt and while we are able to, um, you know, invoke or deactivate certain qualities, I do feel that there is a component of you that you can't just change. So um, I don't believe that there can be very big fluctuations, but I definitely believe in small fluctuations that can be made. Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting subject, just because I'm wondering, like, looking at it from a bit of a different perspective, Mm -hmm. there's, okay, one can change oneself, but I'm wondering like what degree of experiences and like situations and like the external impacts has to be imposed on someone for for someone to have that either drastic change or drastic shift in personality. Because Mm -hmm. just maybe based on personal experience, I... Right. Um, I wonder if a person can be one, say, someone who's very introverted, whether they can be placed in a situation where, where the situation demands for extroversion. I'm not too sure if there's a specific example for, for that, but just as an example. Um, and to what degree, say, either the duration of time or the intensity of the demands that are given to them, how would they actually shift to be more of an extrovert and truly shift to that uh, the other side of the spectrum over time with very little to low kind of opportunities where they feel like they gain energy when spending time alone anymore? Or would they always kind of shift back to that initial state whenever they're given the opportunity? And kind of, that's kind of their safe haven in a sense. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very interesting question because like I mentioned before, um, from kind of the psychology perspective, the belief is that um, a lot of what we do, like we're having this, I was having a discussion with Jenny um, the other day, but um, there's like the big kind of time old question of, is it genetic? Is it environment? Is it both? Or is it none? Um And this kind of falls kind of into this category where you can question whether your introversion or extroversion is a product of your genetics, meaning that no matter how hard maybe you try to be an extrovert, you always stay an introvert. Or if it's purely a consequence of environment, then can you just flip to an extrovert if you put in the work Um, or just change your environment or put yourself in a situation that 
will invoke or cause you to become more of an extrovert. So I guess from a kind of academia perspective, the belief is that there's a reaction range. However, my personal take on that is I do believe while there is a, maybe there might be a genetic component, I haven't done the research for it, but there could definitely be a genetic component to it. Um, there, I, I want to believe that there's some sense of autonomy or some sense of free will that people, if they really want to, could possibly permanently change their, um, where they lie on the spectrum of, if we're talking about introversion, extroversion. I want to believe, like the optimistic side of me wants to believe that people, um, if given the right conditions and the right mindset, are able to gradually, but eventually reach maybe a permanent stage, whether they want to become either more extroverted or they want to become more introverted. And again, wishful thinking makes me think that, you know, hopefully that could be a conscious choice that people are able to make, but I don't know. Again, you know, we don't ever know what um, is a single cause for that in every person. I think for each person, it's very different too. Um, For some people, environment probably plays a huge role in who they are. Um, For some people, it just might be, you know, maybe it's just genetics and they didn't, they're maybe, they grew up like impossibly in a very introverted environment, but there's something in them that calls for them to want to express some extroverted side to them. So I don't know, I think there's two sides to the coin and I feel like, you know, both are equally possible given the diversity of, you know, the the different types of people that are on earth and like you know each person's different and it could be a different situation for you know each person yeah and i think between genetics and experiences all right i guess two pathways to go into this and hopefully we're not straying too far from the topic but for one it's like between genetics and experiences i wonder if the the values during a child's upbringing would affect that would affect like why their whether their genetics will be more determinant of their like future s- success or future personality versus um versus environments because just thinking about it if parents if a child's parents um kind of focus more on the intrinsic values and um kind of what the child is good at starting from a young age and really reinforcing it and developing it to grow. So what the what is genetically gifted to the child, then there could be a chance that the child kind of holds more value in what's already given. And again, like whatever is genetic and later developed, kind of murky, we're kind of in murky waters in that sense. But if a child's parent kind of value that more, feel like there could be a greater chance that the genetic aspects and um, like advantages would be kind of put more into the spotlight. Whereas if there's less of a focus on that, but more of a focus on how a child adapts to changes and adapts to like all of these different environments and different situations during their childhood, then they may focus more towards how to react in those situations and how to really behave themselves and kind of learn about their place in the environment a bit more. So just kind of a thought on that. 
um, but nothing really definitive, just pretty casually philosophic, maybe, but maybe not. Um, and the other thing, I'm not sure if I remember this completely, I may have lost it. So is there any like comments you have? And I, I'll get back to you if I do think of anything. Mm-hmm. I think what you said is important because um, even if there is a genetic component to it, like you said, it really depends on what the parents choose to encourage or foster in kids. Like if there is a genetic component to it, like if genetics is there and you encourage it, then there's a pretty high chance the kid is going to express that. But if there's, if there's a genetic component and it's not encouraged, then maybe it won't get expressed. But then there's the other option of it's not genetic, but it's highly encouraged. So maybe it will get expressed. Mm-hmm. And then there's like not genetic, not encouraged, not expressed. So I guess four different like options that could probably happen. But I think each with each of those combinations, it's like, again, it's another thing of how psychology kind of wants to create boxes and categorizations. And if like this ideology could go to basically anything in psychology, but it, it's like a very kind of like, it's the argument that'll kind of just dump down anything you think. But in reality, it's true that no matter how many categories or options or possibilities we want to examine and kind of like dig into the reality is that each person is going to have their own take to it like maybe a person have it could have like a 50% genetic 50% encouragement blend which leads to like a 50% expression like there's just a billion possibilities that could happen with people and so i feel that like you know to bring it back more to the topic like with introversion and extroversion for example um it's that's why i kind of was emphasizing the ambivert ideology because there's no really, um, like you Judy said, like there's no like, you know, right or wrong way or black and white answer. It's just simply, you know, we're all just on a spectrum. And I feel like there's a lot of variation with that. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to go to the next um, category or next pair of aspects, which is more about gathering information sensing, between sensing and intuition. Um, I'll start with a bit of definition, but I feel like a good thing to get into is just how society perceives these different personality types. And I feel like it came up a little bit with introversion, extroversion, how one may be preferred more than the other. Mm -hmm. We can look a bit more at the backgrounds and the perceptions. And so with sensing, it's people would pay um, people or like sensor people would pay more attention to um, the senses and the physical realities and facts. And what senses like smell, touch, hear, taste. I think there's another one. Can't quite remember. Sight. <laughs> Pardon? Sight. Yes, sight. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, and how they use facts to form the whole picture. And they trust more on the hands-on experiences that, ex- that they have. Whereas intuition, they pay more attention to the impressions, the underlying meanings and patterns behind things. And they enjoy the new and the different and they'd love to examine new ideas and possibilities. And that's kind of like reading in between the lines and just looking at how they collect information differently. Yeah. Something we thought a little bit about was how one might be deemed as more superior than the other. 
um, in society, especially with the skill sets that are kind of inherently in, in them. And I guess sensing could cater more towards creativity and um, like how able you are to react on the spot in given situations perhaps. Whereas intuition, it's more how you can think critically about things and take in an information and find some intrinsic meaning that may not be um, too apparent in how you work with that. And I think something that we can look at here would be the IQ. And that's kind of an indicator or measure that's held of at a pretty high standard in our current societies. And it is very lacking in a lot of ways, even just measurement, uh, measuring intelligence wise. There's so many factors that determines intelligence. May that be like social intelligence that we were talking about earlier between like I and E or kinesthetic, logical, linguistic. And that just really like you can never quite define one person as being intelligent. Although I have heard of the G factor which is the general factor. I think Carmen may know this a lot more than I do, um, but that was something, but you can't quite say that one person is intelligent or not by just looking at that with this one, one of the four aspects or one of the many aspects that determines intelligence. But I feel like with intelligence wise, what certain types are valued more than others in society. Like when you're finding a job, say in a computer science, software developing position. There are companies that may look at personality tests, but also take IQ tests to see what IQs they are. And even though they're so limited in perspective, you can still see that how like the skills required in IQ. So these would be more to, for people with higher N than S. So these people who are able to see the patterns and solve challenges and think more critically these are going to be the problems that are going to, they're going to face in the workspace. And so ultimately, the companies would want to find employees that have more of these skills so that they can offer more to the company. So although it might be biased and limited in perspective, it still makes sense in, a, in one way, perhaps, to see how this can be an indicator that a company finds value in. Although I do know also that workspaces are looking more and more into like diverse communities and diverse workspaces, which is really good to hear on this, like in the side of finding the value in diversity of experiences. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, yeah, I was taking what you're saying and I really like what you said about like the last part you mentioned about um, like the value in taking in people or hiring people who have maybe unconventional skill sets that might not immediately seem very promising to somebody, but if used properly and if transferred properly can actually be very useful to a company to get like an all-rounded perspective on an issue from perspectives and angles that they may not have looked before. Um, like I know that there's a lot of people that will take in um, you know, like maybe for something that's more like mathematical based, they'll hire some, maybe some art students or some social science students. And at first it sounds kind of bizarre. Like, when it, I mean, like one thing that just comes to mind is like, you know, I was doing some like job searching and I came across like a project that a company wanted to work on. 
And at first glance, it seemed like it'd be a very mathematical situation because you'd have to crunch numbers, you would have to do some analytics. And so you would assume that a math major would be very useful. And I was surprised to see under the job description that it's like, um, they said that they would be interested in hiring art students or students that don't fall under the conventional math or um, statistics degrees. And I was kind of interested. I was like, hmm, this is an interesting proposition. Why would they do this? And I read that the company said that they value like a holistic perspective and they didn't want people to just crunch numbers all day. They wanted people to see a vision for the company. They want people to be able to represent the voices and the perspectives of people who don't usually make it to the table or who don't usually get a say in how a company should maneuver or take the next step. So um, like, for example, like a social science student, let's say who's doing international relations, they would know, um, you know, what are the benefits of creating like, you know, like partnerships in certain companies? What's the usefulness of hiring people from different countries? What perspective do they offer? Why is international relations so important? And so I think that the, like you said, the perspective on getting people using different senses. So maybe people that are sensing or intuitive, maybe people who have worked maybe more labor jobs who are very well-versed in the sensing type of field may be very valuable to a company who maybe has only been working with people with the N type of mindset, people that can recognize patterns right away. Perhaps they need something more tangible. Perhaps they need a perspective that's very more grounded and realistic in the senses, something that will you know, give the company a better framework to work with. So that was one thing. The second thing also was um, maybe like a bias or a sense of like a stereotype that could be associated with it. I feel at least when I first thought of like intuitive versus sensing was that I've heard before that intuitive people, now I think we'll get into this like with the introverted um, intuition, extrovert intuition, but sometimes intuitive people can be often taken across for being like fake or phony or um, not grounded in the real world. And the reason I mention this is because often with intuitive people, their, um, their train of thought or their course of thought may not always be linear. It may not always be conventional. It may not be easy for people to quite understand initially. So for someone who may be sensing, for someone who uses very tangible things to come to concrete solutions, they may be able to invoke more evidence. So for example, a sensing person who maybe explains um, why are plants green, they may have a much more practical perspective in the conventional sense. Um, you know, the leaf looks green because um, you can feel that it's getting hotter because the sun is falling on it, therefore this happens. They use their senses to come to a logical conclusion versus intuitive people, well, I mean, obviously for not the same as example, but maybe a different example could be like, um, why is the company suffering loss? And maybe you could come up with a creative solution for that. But the problem is that with intuitive people, because I feel that they can create, understand patterns that may not be readily or easily easy to explain, it can be hard to provide solid evidence for it sometimes. And I personally came across this issue. Um, I think it's kind of, sometimes like you run across this issue where um, I'll be able to recognize like a very kind of distinct pattern, um, like a why for something that maybe people haven't caught on to. And I'll maybe say my final conclusion, like I'll have a very final thought and people will say, okay, um, well, walk me through your process. Tell me how you got from your start to your finish. And the problem with intuitive people with 
what they might encounter with this situation is that they might not know how to create a linear explanation for people because their thought process isn't very linear. They might not have a very um, grounded um, way to explain how their mind works. And so for somebody who's trying to understand that perspective, it can be hard to say, well, okay, I understand what you're coming from. Because for someone who just gets a conclusion and can't back up how they got there, it can be hard for somebody to catch on and to understand how a person with a strong end function, you know, operates. So I think that there's definitely a bias for people um, at least in the corporate or in the workforce, people that are more sensing might be more better understood. People with an N may not necessarily be understood as quickly or as willingly as people that have the S function because they're able to explain their thought process to a better degree and more convincingly at times. So I think that's one stereotype that I feel like, you know, might exist with people. And I like how you brought it into the workspace and like your example of how the different functions may react differently or have a thinking have a different thinking process going into solving a challenge or solving a problem. Um, but in terms of more of the learning process wise, do you think that people with sensing versus into like people who are more intuitive or like more N would have how would their learning strategies be different and how would their work kind of preferences be different? Mm -hmm. um, at least again, like I can only speak from personal experience because um, spoiler, I may or may not have some N within me, <laughs> but um, I can speak on this because I feel that I've come across the dilemma where um, there, there, may, there may be a very open-ended question presented to me and there may be multiple answers. And a lot of people, maybe with the sensing function, are able to pick up on the answers that are most readily available to their senses. So I don't want to say obvious answers, but I'll say this, the answers that best appeals to the senses. So something they can see very visually or something that they can kind of decipher with their senses. But the thing is that for someone with an intuitive approach to um, questions, it can be harder to kind of explain to people how you found a very distinct, um, unique pattern that may not have been found by other people. You know, because a lot of things just kind of piece in our head together. That's very hard to explain verbally. So I feel like although for people with an, a very strong end function, although they may be very aware that they have a very strong sense of intuition, to be able to verbalize that intuition and to be able to explain how their mind works may not be as easy compared to somebody who has an S function because they can always rely on their senses to back them up. So I think that, I think um, one of the stereotypes is that N, people with N functions tend to do better more in the creative arts and in the fields where they can express that without having to create a very logical train of thought. But um, sorry, what was your second part of your question? Just work preferences and how you prefer to kind of take on these different opportunities? I think just basically that end types might prefer a more laissez-faire or creative unbounded approach to questioning things. Like instead of being restricted to like, you have three options, pick the best option for us. That versus here's a problem. List all the ways that we can navigate this problem. And that creates a lot of freedom for a person with an end type to you know, explore different ideas, create different branches, see how they connect, 
understand what the biases, what the pros, what the cons might be, understand the stakeholders, understand different angles that may not necessarily be very um, quick for somebody with an S function to pick up on. So while an S, a person with an S function may understand the very logistical parts of a problem, a person with an unfunction may understand the perspectives of possible stakeholders more better. They may understand how um, a client who lives in a very rural area will respond to some problem, for instance. And so I feel like people with that kind of end function are able to see a bit beyond and a bit from a more objective perspective as compared to people that S function that are maybe able to see the practicalities of an issue or the, um, yeah, the, the basically the practicalities of an issue. But yeah. I think what I'm hearing too is that people who are more N may be, may think more open-mindedly about situations and problems, whereas sensing people might focus more on the facts, the details that are given to them, and maybe even their own experiences to really create a judgment into how a conclusion can be made or, or how like an idea can be interpreted in their minds. Whereas, and people might really seek to be more open into, oh, um, this is one perspective, then how can I really make a better decision or make a more well-rounded solution Given the information, how can I really seek hours to truly understand? Um, but yeah, that's pretty interesting. I feel like between the two types and really one isn't any more superior than the other because depending on the situations and depending on you as a person, there are times when one can be more handy than the other. And yeah, it really just depends on a lot of the situation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a bit of what you said also did tie into our next um, kind of set of aspects or next pair, which is decision making. Um, and these fall into, once again, two, two categories. And Carmen mentioned before it was thinking and feeling. The thinkers, they make decisions using, using their brains. And these people are um, they analyze the pros and cons of things. They're more interpersonal and more fair and they require logical explanations and solutions. So I feel like with this, it kind of tied also back into um, maybe a little bit of sensing, although I do know that the categories don't quite align as much, but with people who have a trouble, uh, who has trouble having their understanding or ideas understood by others the audience may lack a certain amount of empathy, which is a little more prominent in thinkers to really be accepting of another person's idea. And maybe just something that I kind of want to dip into there, Um, but going back to the decision-making pair and how people make decisions, there's thinking and feeling. And feeling are individuals who um, appear warmer, more caring, more careful, uh, more tactful, and they make better decisions when they do consider other people's viewpoints, which does quite tie a little bit into how we kind of interpret others and what we were mentioning a bit earlier. And they're more concerned with values and what's good for others and make heart-based decisions. So it's kind of like the head and the heart kind of a comparison. Yeah. So just right off the top of our head, are there any thoughts about 
kind of this category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm taking a moment to think about this because um, I'm trying to see where the distinction lies between people that have the SN function versus the TF function, whether there's similarities or differences between that and people, let's say with like an either an S or an N function, do they have a greater propensity towards a T or F function? Um, like, are there any patterns like, you know, with that? And just off the top of my head, um, I feel like it could be very weird. Like, you know, as we know from the 16 personalities test, that there's no distinct pattern per se of which one's going to go to which. Um, which I think is interesting because there can be very different combinations of how this could play out or how it could look in individuals and um, and how each combination can kind of create a different effect or a different personality blend, if you will, in certain people. And it looks different in how they exhibit those traits and how those traits when paired together, how they you know, behave. As for thinking and feeling, um, I think this is this kind of goes on a very similar tangent that I talked about with S and N in the sense where um, certain qualities may be valued in a very traditional setting. And depending on who you ask and depending who you, um, what setting you're put in, certain qualities could be valued more than the other. So for example, um, we were talking about gender bias the other day about which one is valued to be more important when it comes to uh, males and females. So we can say back maybe like in the let's go 1800s maybe, um, men were had to be very masculine and feminine were demanded to be very feminine and to embrace those, you know, very well. And the idea was that like men had to be the, the obviously the head of the household. They had to take care of everything. They had to manage finances. They had to manage, you know, the nitty gritty details of a household, um, you know, work a job, et cetera. So I think from that perspective, Thinking was definitely, I feel like, a masculine function that was expected of males in that society to take on. On the other hand, you know, when we think of feeling, we think of compassion, we think of generosity, we think of empathy. And I think for most people, that seems very much resonated with the female or feminine energy. So I think that even back, let's say, back to the 1800s, females were expected to have very strong feeling type because you know they raised the children, stayed at home, had to make sure that everyone was feeling okay, etc. And I think that in today's current society, this combination of thinking and feeling, I think, really has played out in an interesting way. Where with, you know, like if we look through history, the different waves of maybe feminism, for example, what each wave of femi- feminism kind of wanted to break the mold of. So if we started back, like back in the um, 1800s, where let's say women were expected to be 100% feeling type. And then in the first wave of feminism, um, they wanted, women wanted to work. <clears throat> so maybe for that perspective, women were kind of encouraged to take on more of a T function. They were encouraged to be more rational to manage their finances, to learn to have a career. And so they may, that may have caused more females to learn to operate from a T perspective or invoke a T um, cognitive function within them. You know, And I think this is an ex- a perfect example of um, how your environment or how your situation can kind of cause you to you know, develop a certain function that you may not be used to using. And so I think with women starting to work, it has led to many more females 
having to invoke that T function, having to think more rationally, having to um, not just use their F function all the time. And so I think there's this balance with the modern day female, which, you know, over those years, we're at the situation now where females have the liberty to both work, manage a career, and also stay at home and manage their personal life and balance out the T and F functions such that they don't get overwhelmed by the other. Because a lot of times, um, again, this may be a stretch, but correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of times, like women in perhaps like high positions in like businesses, for instance, who maybe have a very strong T function and maybe a very, you know, not so strong F function, they can often be seen as very masculine and maybe even demanding for some people. And so that can be often seen as a woman being too pushy. And for those reasons, they would consider a woman to be, you know, not the conventional female or she's being, you know, like overly aggressive. So I feel like there's a lot of bias when it comes to um, people and the proportion of T and F functions that they possess in general. But yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think you mentioned a lot about like how environment may affect environment and gender, gender stereotype and that expectation that society imposes on individuals may affect how their personality may pay, play out. Um, and I feel like it's a very interesting idea that you brought up when was like women being in leadership because taking it back a little bit, I wonder how much environment again versus just the general uh, like gender disposition or like genetic disposition um, that males versus females have, how that affects a person's emotions and how they how they take on emotions. It's going back to maybe a child at a very like at a very young age. The gender stereotypes of our societies today kind of makes that up upbringing process be more like when a uh, when a boy experiences a experiences a sad moment or a situation and they would cry but the parents would probably be like don't cry um you're your boy you're a man man don't cry you have to be strong and tough and so that kind of over time develops into males or like boys guys not really able to understand their emotions or really be in connection with them. Whereas the stereotypes of female makes them to grow up to be a little more sensitive and understanding of what their own emotions are like. So there's also been history of psychology, I guess, think, um, with defining emotions and where they really come from. And there is an emotional side and the mental aspect of it. We have kind of discussed, discussed this a bit on our own times. But there are different theories on whether the physical reactions to an emotion defines that you feel sad or angry or happy versus how you kind of take it mentally. And like, if you think that a situation should make you feel angry, there's that aspect versus 